Hey there, friend. Welcome back to another episode of Exploring the Seasons of Life, a podcast for women with a big heart on a spiritual journey. I'm your host, Cindy McMillan. I hope you're having a wonderful week. And today we're talking about how the stories we've been told and the ones we tell ourselves often keep us playing small. Each week, I interview coaches and spiritual explorers from all walks of life about beginnings, endings, and the messy bits in between. Self-love, well-being, and mindset are at the heart of our conversations because once you change the inside, the outside will begin to change as well. As always, I'm honored that we're spending time together, and I'm delighted to introduce my guest. Rana Dietrich is a coach and writer, compelled by and committed to the power of women's stories, past, present, and future. She also has decades of experience in corporate leadership, gave a TEDx talk, and is a certified spiritual director. Rana, thanks so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Mm, It's my privilege, Cindy. Thanks for having me. You know, I do want to talk about your TEDx talk because that's really exciting. But I want to start off with what does exploring the seasons of life mean to you personally or in your business? Mm, That's such a good question. Well... I will say that it is front of mind for me. I'm now 61 and I just would have never expected that this season of my life would be as rich and lovely and full as it is. You know, we have so much stigma attached to aging and particularly for women and I'm single and my daughters are grown. And so this season of life for me feels just so expansive and curious and, um, with so much more possibility than I think that I expected and in ways that are very non-traditional. So, or non unexpected maybe. So to go to your question, it just feels so uh, generous and wise to be able to pay attention to the season that we're in and even to honor, like I have a dear friend whose daughter is, is still young and at home and, when we first became friends, her daughter was like a toddler and mine were in like middle school, moving into high school even, I think. And I just remember saying to her, this is just a season. This too shall pass. We don't think that when we're in it, right? We feel like this is going to be our fate forever. But to hold an awareness and an appreciation for the fact that we're in different seasons of life, our own as well as others, just feels like the wisest and most compassionate perspective we could have. I love that you talked about aging because I I think, you know, when people are 25 and they're in that season of life and maybe they look at someone in their 60s or 70s and they're thinking that's so far away. Mm. It happens really quick. <laughs> it does happen quick. And you know, I spend an awful lot of time, certainly in conversations with my clients, but even in conversation with myself, looking back over those decades that do in some ways feel like they were yesterday, and in other ways, had so much packed into them that I couldn't 
see with perspective that I couldn't understand or even appreciate because they were painful. They were hard. They were, yes, just yesterday. And I can acknowledge that there are, you know, five decades of life lived in there that has so much yet to be explored with retrospect and reflection. Mm, Love that. So now you've just made a, a really big move coast to coast, I did. Washington to North Carolina. How does that tie in with a season of life that oh you're in God. right now? Yeah. Again, so unexpected. Like, you know, by the time you're 60, I suppose one would assume, I don't know why we make these assumptions, that you're settled, that you're slowing down, that you're, you know, in your home and this is your future. Uh, but for me, uh, once my, you know, my daughters are 23 and 25, they live in two completely separate states from me and from each other. And I found myself, I just became aware I am living in the city that I've stayed in for them. It's their home. It's, it's, you know, they've gone, they've been in, you know, we've been in the same area for for me, for 30 years, I've lived in this area uh, and grew up, was born and raised in Washington as well. So when the opportunity presented itself to move to North Carolina from my sister, she invited me to come live in her house on the third floor with her husband and daughter. There was a part of me that felt like, I don't know, like that seems like a strange thing to do at this stage of my life in this season. Like I should probably just settle down and stay put and figure it out and (laughs) shut down somehow is what it feels like. And yet the invitation felt like I went, oh, there's nothing that prevents me from doing that. Like I get to define what this season is going to look like now again, still single, but without being a full-time parent. What does my business look like? What does my writing life look like? What does my personal life look like? And I could be part of a family and uh, it's just, I'm so surprised by it. I'm just really surprised by what has been made available to me. Um, And it just feels like it's yet another season that has opened up for me on another coast, all new, exciting, yet to be discovered. And that's what I was just thinking as you were talking. You've moved to a new place. Now, you I mean, obviously, you know your your sister and her (laughs) family, but you've moved to a new place. So it's like full of discovery. Mm-hmm. You know, what's going to be around the corner? That's exciting. It is. I mean, it is the kind of thing, to, you know, to your point that, that I mean, I did this to some degree. Like when I turned 30, I moved to a foreign country and lived there for a year. And it was very tumultuous and a huge transition. And I guess on some level that made sense at 30. Like I've had friends who are like, you're doing what? Now? Really? Um and I don't know, I, I'm, I'm super excited about it. Like, it's great. And it's new, and it's fresh, and it gives me all kinds of energy and inspiration. So yeah, so far, so good. Well, congratulations on your move. Thanks. And, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about that in your newsletters. Mm, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> so can you just talk a little bit about your journey to becoming a coach and a writer and kind of weave in there your your journey of giving that TED, TEDx talk? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So there's, you know, lots of tendrils or rabbit trails I could follow in that question or with that topic. Um, I think probably the cleanest maybe way to talk about this is to just give a little bit of context. I grew up uh, in the Presbyterian church predominantly, like that was my world in many ways. My family was very involved. I went to a Christian college 10 years after college or eight or something like that. I met and married a pastor. Uh, Like I've been steeped in this world of organized religion without resistance to it. Like it's the world that I knew it, like I had no reason particularly to question it. And really my sense of self was very defined by how good I could be at that. (laughs) Like, was I doing all the right things, reading the right books, getting better, getting, you know, being more spiritual, more committed, etc. And I don't say that in a derogatory way, necessarily, like there's, there are a few catches in there that I've later looked at. But it was the it was the worldview that I had, and uh, one that I could appreciate and still can appreciate in many ways. When I turned 40, I think, yeah, I, I was 40. I'd been married then by about 10 years. My daughters were three and five or some such thing. They were little. I went to seminary to uh, get my Master of Divinity degree, not because I wanted to be a pastor. Uh, One of those was more than enough in our house, but because I really wanted to learn. And I found a school that was incredibly progressive and really committed to understanding theology in ways that were relevant to our culture. And by that point in my life, I had had enough experiences in which I felt like the church often is irrelevant to our culture. It's why people leave. It's why people aren't particularly engaged even when they're there, because it isn't always talking about things that are true for us, that that matter, that feel significant and real. So I was really lucky to go to a school that invited that conversation. And it was in the midst of that, that I, two really significant things happened. One was that I was taking original languages. I was learning both Hebrew and Greek. And in the Hebrew class, there were only seven or eight of us in there. And so six of the students were men, the professor was male, and then there were me and one other woman that were in the class. And we would come in every day to class with the translation that we had done the night before, all of us translating exactly the same Old Testament text. We were working with the book of Ruth, interestingly. And uh, what I noticed after, I don't know, a few weeks was that the translation that the other woman and I brought in were, was always different than the men's. Not shockingly, because of course you only have so many words that you're working with and, you know, like it wasn't like we were telling a totally different story, but there was enough of a difference that I started to notice it. And each week the men would argue with us and they would go, well, you can't translate it that way. That's not what it says. And both of us would say, uh, there's nothing wrong technically with what we translated. So if I cut to the chase here, what I began to realize was that when I brought my perspective to the text and did the same translation work that's been done for thousands of years, there was a different telling, a different tone, a different texture that showed up because it's a woman's perspective. If I take this one step further, then what, of course, you one can name is 
all of these stories, all of the theology, everything that religion means or has said has been exclusively through a male lens. Yes. No harm, no foul. I understand why that's the case. I'm not angry about that. I get it. But what it said to me was, ooh, there's a whole world of wisdom and truth in here that's never been considered. No, not never. I'm not the first person to ever, the first woman to ever think of this. But for me, that was a really big discovery. The, and I think the other thing that went right along with that is that when you look at original language in this sacred text, you realize that the translation of it, the interpretation of it, even scripture itself that we have our hands on is massively subjective. Like it, it, like it's so subjective. People made editorial decisions all throughout that text in terms of how it would be written down and then think about all the people who've talked about it over the centuries. They are talking about it subjectively through their lens and their perspective, which then said to me, I have permission to do the same thing. I'm no different. I can do this if I want to. I can interpret this the way I want, not irresponsibly, but I mean, I, I'm studied, I'm trained, I can, and I have opinions, I can do this. So that was one thing. The second thing was that I took a class called Feminist Critique. And I'm not proud of this, but by then I was probably 42. I think it was really my first significant encounter with feminism. Not that I hadn't heard of it, that I didn't know what it was, of course I did, but it was really at a personal level the first time that I started wrestling with the concepts of feminism. Feminist theology, womanist theology, liberation theology, huge bodies of work that had looked at my system of beliefs through a much different lens. And that was like a shattering of everything that had gone before and opened up this brand new world for me. So if I jump forward a little bit, this is a long version, long way to answer your question, but all of that began shifting my own writing. And I'd been journaling for forever. I also had, I've been blogging for, I don't know, 14 years or some such thing now. But all of this was shaping what I was thinking about, what I was talking about. Uh, and I began working with these stories of women uniquely in scripture because I just, Though I have certainly, I've left the church, I've walked away from so many of those beliefs, created new ways of, of what the spiritual and the sacred looks like for me. But those women's stories have stayed with me. Uh, have I've often said I took them with me when I left the church, but I think, in fact, they took me with them. Um, and uh, I am just so compelled by wanting them known and heard and seen and honored outside of all the doctrine and the dogma and the blech that makes us not want to hear them, want to just kind of push them into the archives and turn toward anything else. I just feel like there's so much life in those women's stories. And as you, my TED talk, what I spend time speaking about is that even if you've never darkened the door of a church, never had anything to do with with organized religion, as a woman, and as a man, frankly, but as a woman, your life has been dramatically impacted by the story of Eve and countless others. But in my TED Talk, I speak directly about Eve. 
whether you know it or not, like her story and the way it's been told, not the story, but the way it's been interpreted and used and mangled and manipulated and like all kinds of words I could apply there has shaped the life that we live as women. The fact that we don't make the same amount of money, the fact that we aren't honored for maternity leave, the fact that uh, we don't get equal pay for equal work, that we're not in leadership to the same degree. Like I could talk for hours and hours about this. And in my mind, this all goes back to Eve, not her choices, but the way we've talked about those choices. And so that's what I love to do is mess with those stories, reimagine them in ways that are empowering and redemptive and that give us as women, I think we are so hungry for this, give us stories that offer us strength and capacity and courage, not shame and silence and suffering. We've had enough of that. So I'm trying to tell the stories in ways that invite our strength and our power and our beauty and our wisdom. And it's all right there for us. So long answer, but that's, that's the work that I do. I absolutely loved that. And I want to go back for just a minute and say, I grew up Southern Baptist Mm. and I would also go to a primitive Baptist church with my grandmother. Where there was no music, no, yes, yes. Yes, Uh right. Mm -hmm. And as I got older and probably in my 20s, I also started thinking about that as I would, you know, read the Bible that there's got to be another version of this. And then, honestly, that's when I found out there were different versions. (laughs) (laughs) So I would, you know, whenever somebody would say something, I would, you know, look at all these different versions of the Bible to try to make it make meaning for me. Yeah. And so I love what you were doing and how you were telling these stories. That is, that's like bomb for the soul. I don't know how else to say that. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's it beautiful. certainly has been for me, right? Like I, I'm not, I'm not confused by this. Like I, I do write these stories for others. I'm working on a book. I, I, I create content around these that is distributed in lots of different ways. But I'm so clear, Cindy, that they're for me, right? It's bomb for my soul. Like these, the these women's stories and the ways that I have imagined, reimagined them, is it heals me. Uh, I'm grateful that it has impact and reach beyond me. And I'm so clear that it is it is on my behalf as well. Can you talk a little bit about how the stories that we've been told keep us playing small? And how can we retell those stories? Yeah, yeah, I definitely can. Um, so let's go back to Eve. That's the that's an easy example. I could use countless stories, um, but let's just use hers because everybody knows it. That's a story that we've been told, again, as I said earlier, whether you heard it growing up, like read from the Bible or from told from the pulpit or not, you know the story. There's a garden, there's a God, there's a tree you're not supposed to eat from, there's a man, there's a woman, there's a snake, uh, Eve eats the fruit, they get banished from the garden. Um, and, you know, based on the way that we've heard the story, uh, the one that we've been told, uh, you know, that was the downfall of all humanity forever and ever, amen. The first story out of the text is disastrous. And why? Because a woman 
listened to the serpent instead of to the God or the man in this case, male God for sure, followed her own desire, had her own sense of things, own wisdom, own intuition, and we all went to hell in a handbasket. I'm being slightly um, (laughs) pedantic and very reductionist, but that's the gist of it. Okay, so that's the story that we've been told that then has shaped the, the philosophies and the religion and social structures and politics and everything that that you know back in the day um, religion and politics weren't separate they were all the same thing so when we live in a world that is shaped by that story as women we live in a world of shame we very quickly default to shame or and or we hold ourselves back. I better not give my opinion. I probably shouldn't actually do what I want or say what I really mean at work, in my marriage, to my parents, with my family. Because if I do, it's just going to be messy. If I do, I'm not going to be understood. If I do, all hell's going to break loose. So the core message underneath that is I'm just too much. I'm just too much. I, I I just have to tone it down because people can't actually handle me. And I believe that I'm too much. I believe that I'm just going to create disaster wherever I go if I would if I were to really just show up and be myself. Now, again, these are broad sweeping categories. There's lots of nuance in there. But that's a story that we've been told or never told, but it still is true for us as women. We are living the story we've been told, and it keeps us small. It keeps us trapped in silence and shame. It keeps us afraid to reach for what we want, to follow our hungers, to pursue our desires, to to take a stand, to have an opinion, to upset the apple cart. So that's one of the reasons why I so deeply want these stories retold because I don't want us living from that that story. I want us living a story that is redeemed and empowered. And I think that's there's permission to tell it in a different way. So that's an example. And one other quick example I'll give Cindy of a story that we've been told. Let's say you grew up in, uh, well, I'll, let me use you as an example. You grew up in the Southern Baptist Church. What part of the country? Louisiana, Mississippi. Okay, the South then. All the right. South. So... The, the family story that you were told, I'm just going to make a wild stab in the dark, is a woman's place is in the home. A child should be seen and not heard. Please do not be disruptive. Please be obedient. Please follow the rules. Be good. Be good. Be good. If you're good, we will love you. If you're good, you will get a pat on the head. If you're good, your life will go the way that it should. All right, story that you were told in a myriad of ways based on what you saw around you, based on the culture that you lived in. And that story carries itself through. That was decades ago for you. And yet I bet there's still a voice inside your head from time to time that says, if I were to do that, that's not very nice of me. That I wouldn't like people might not think I'm good if I do that. I I would be like rebellious somehow. Now, you can argue with the voice. 
you can still make those choices, but it still is talking inside your head because those are powerful stories from your family of origin and your culture that were told. And in my mind, right, I mix all this together. We've got these big, huge stories, archetypal stories like Eve's, along with the way that those showed up in our own lives and the place in the country we lived in our own houses and our own families. It's just a big forest inside our psyches um, of story that is 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 hard to acknowledge at times and is just such fertile soil for exploration and curiosity and growth. And as you're talking, I'm sitting here shaking my head because, <laughs> yes, those stories still play in my mind about being the good girl. Yeah. You know, you're in the South, be a good hostess, be a people pleaser. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Those are the stories that we've been told. And okay, fine. The work from my perspective for all humans, but certainly for women, and it's the work that I'm constantly doing with clients, is we have to we have to know those stories exist. I have to name them. I have to be able to acknowledge that they're present within me, where they came from, why they're so deeply rooted, because otherwise they just keep talking. And I don't know how to hear the story I long for. I don't know how to create different messages, how to hear voices that feel more authentic, deeper, wiser, more tender toward myself. Uh, this, this work with stories is just, it's endless. Like, as I said, like I, I have my own that I'm constantly looking back at and needing to unweave and unravel even more so that I am living a story that feels like it's actually mine. I want to ask you right now, and I'm not sure exactly how how to ask this question, but if we have a story that we've been told, and let's and let's use the good girl. Sure. How do we change that into something more empowering? Mm-hmm. Using for example, stories from the Bible. Sure. Well, let me go back to Eve again. What we've been told about her is that she was a bad girl. Don't do that, right? She's an example. And most of the stories of women in scripture, sadly, have been used as examples of what not to do, (laughs) as opposed to examples that we need of what does it look like to live an empowered life. So the way I tell Eve's story is much different. I honor the fact that she trusted her own wisdom. I encourage women to name what they desire, which is what Eve does, and to pursue it, to follow it. And I talk about the fact, if you know this story, if you grew up with this story, like the way it's been told is that once she ate the fruit, they were banished from the garden and intimacy with the divine was broken, right? I completely disagree with that based on the text itself. So let's just look at it super quickly here. Once Adam and Eve leave the garden, there's way more intimacy with the divine. If you think about the stories that follow from that point, the divine actually shows up in physical form, speaks, interacts, protects, miracles occur, burning bushes, red seas parting, plagues of locusts, like, There's so much more activity and engagement with the divine outside of the garden 
But what we've said is, look, it all fell apart when Eve ate the fruit. I think it actually got better. And it got more real. My life is not like the garden. My life is east of Eden. And I want stories and I want an experience of a God that can relate to that, not perfection, because that's not the world I live in. All right. So we've been told not to be the bad girl. But if I retell Eve's story, now good means, oh, what I want matters. Good means, oh, I actually have wisdom within that can be trusted. So if you and I, if you were my client, Cindy, the question I'd be asking you over and over and over again as it relates to healing this story is, what do you want? You don't have to act on it. You don't have to say it out loud right now. But what do you want? What do you desire? If you could just do, say, be, act, however you wanted, and you weren't worried about the people pleasing, other people's opinions and perspectives, if people think you've totally lost your mind, if you if it makes your marriage fall apart, like if we didn't worry about that right now, can you hear, will you give yourself permission and space to just ask, what do I desire? What do I want? And it is astounding to me. Well, it was for me personally, but even as I work with women now, how rarely women ask themselves that question and let themselves answer it because it's scary. We know that if we were to actually name this stuff, that there will be risks and costs and consequences. And that's the next step of the process, right? Is to start acknowledging that. But that's the start. Like, if all I ever think is I have to be good, then there's no room for me to ask myself what I actually want. And that's the beginning. As you're talking, it's one of the things that I talk about here on the podcast is that self awareness. Mm-hmm. And as you were explaining right there, just asking ourselves that question what do you want? And I agree with you. I don't think a lot of women give themselves permission to ask that question. They don't give themselves permission. And frankly, our culture doesn't give women permission. Patriarchy does not give women permission to ask that question because it's too disruptive. It's too, it messes with the system. It uproots, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, it's disruptive. But the fact that we believe that we can't be is highly problematic. That's the culture that we live in that tells us not to make waves. Don't upset the apple cart. Don't be disruptive. Who said? And why is that distinct to women? Mm. <laughs> uh, that's problematic. Yes. And, and, yeah. what I, and even deeper than that, what I would say, the deeper healing is getting to a place where me choosing what I want to say, how I want to be, how I'm going to show up in the world isn't disruptive. You may think that it is, but I, I'm not going to accept that. I get to actually be myself without being judged for being disruptive. I'm not going to judge it. Like I get to be me, period. And that would be a beautiful world for us to live in where our behaviors or our desires are not seen as rebellious or disruptive. They're just our behaviors and our desires. 
which are legitimate. And when you and when you just said, why is it for women? That really hit home because as I'm thinking, yes, it's for women. When it comes to to men, they're not asked those questions. No. Why do you want to? Why do you want a promotion? Exactly. And we honor them for being disruptive in that regard. Good for you for asking for what you want. Good for you for being innovative and breaking the rules and being a, you know, a risk taker. But, you know, we we don't we don't honor women in the same I mean, not exclusively. Of course, women are honored for breaking barriers and moving forward, but culturally still there's a much different set of language and and categorizing for men than there is for women in this regard. And that's just not acceptable. (laughs) And I was going to ask you about the power of language and stories, but I think you kind of, (laughs) kind of wrap that up in there. So the power of language is incredibly important and it goes for generations with the way that we speak for example, to to a child, and then what they carry forward. Absolutely. I mean, let's just even take one tiny word as example. The word desire, right, is is tons carries tons and tons and tons of freight with it. Your response to it might be, "Ooh, I love that," or it might be, uh, "That's not to be talked about," or it's there's no way I would pursue that because that's too dangerous. Like, and all of those could exist within us. It's a, Mm -hmm. it's a loaded word. And so, you know, if I throw, if I use that word in the context of a relatively conservative environment, I already know how it's going to be interpreted, but that's not what I actually mean. So I have to redeem this language. I have to give for myself and all of us, we need permission to reimagine this, these words and these concepts and these ideas and these stories in ways that aren't restrictive and shameful and dark. They're, it's language. We can use it in a way that serves us. I love going and looking at what words actually meant. The etymology, isn't it yes. interesting? <laughs> yes, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, I've often joked uh, with people. In fact, I think I used to have it in my bio that I considered the thesaurus my best friend. <laughs> <laughs> I love words. Yeah, they matter. One of the things that you talk about on your website, and I believe I saw this on your website, not one of your newsletters, was how being spiritual and sacred 100% of the time and not putting on different selves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, what I, yeah. What I talk about is being 100% yourself 100% of the time. Yes. Um, and I think if I tie this to the sacred and the spiritual, um, regardless of our religious beliefs or lack thereof, there is, we are sacred beings. We, we are, there is a spiritual component to who we are and how we show up. And I think my own personal work and what certainly what I work with work on in my writing and with and for women is what it looks like to have a life that feels integrated where I'm not 
one person with my spouse and another person at my job, where I behave one way when I'm with my girlfriends, but another way when I'm with my parents, where, you know, or um, who I am on Saturday and Sunday compared to who I am on Monday through Friday. Uh, I mean, I have so many stories of this disconnection in my own soul. I could, I have so many stories of this that are excruciating. When I could see it, when I could see, oh, I'm becoming a different person in this relationship because that's what this relationship needs from me. But that's not who I am when I'm at work during the day. That's not okay. Like the gap between who I know myself to be and how other people experience me is excruciating. And I would probably go so far as to say that's a spiritual crisis. <laughs> that's a crisis when, when we have to pull ourselves apart, put on masks or a veneer or a hat or whatever, a role, whatever you want to call it, where you can't just be you all the time. Uh, and I think for me, that really hit me about by the time I was about 50 I and I was married and no, I wasn't. I was divorced by then. It was before I got divorced. So it must have been mid 40s where I began realizing that I just was not fully myself all the time, that I had to kind of dance around and be a particular person in particular contexts. And this is way too, I mean, this took me years, to, but here's the end of it. I'm like, no more of that. I want to feel that no matter who I'm in conversation with, where I show up, what I'm doing, there's no patina, there's no veneer, there's no dancing around. Like I just am me. And that to me is a sacred life when it's whole and intact, and I don't feel pulled or torn or constrained or edited or censored. And we're doing the editing and the censoring. I mean, we self-edit, we self-censor, we figure out what we think people can handle. And that's what we say. Like, that's the stuff that I'm like, no more of that. No more of that. And that's spiritual work to be able to, to be connected to ourselves in a way that feels whole and sane and deep and wide, um, not scattered and dissonant and pulled apart. And I think that's what we are all looking for is exactly what you described. Mm -hmm. And I've worked on that myself because I, I certainly realized, you know, at work, I showed up one way as this professional woman, you know, didn't talk about, you know, my private life. Everything was work related. And I don't think people really knew me at all mm. at work. Which is other painful, than that, isn't it? Other than that professional facade, I'm going to say. Mm -hmm. But then in even in friendships, even in friendships with different women, I also showed up in different ways. And so, yes, I have certainly worked on um, being, and I'm still working on it. Of course, it's a life <laughs> journey, isn't it? <laughs> but being, as you said, integrated. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Love that's, that. Yeah. And it's not a season of life. It's just life. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so what is the biggest surprise you've had 
in the last few months and why? Well, uh, the biggest surprise I've had is my move to North Carolina. And I think if I were to drop a bit deeper in that, what I've been surprised by is what it feels like to receive generosity. Honestly, I've had to rack my brain as to when the last time was that I was a recipient of such generosity as my sister and her family are are demonstrating and what it means for me to accept it. Uh, because, you know, I've been single now for, I don't know, 16 or 17 years. But when I started thinking about it, even in my marriage, I was the person that was in charge. I was organizing. I was responsible for the house. I was responsible for the kids, I, you know. So yes, I was cared for, but, n- but I'm still responsible for everything. I have been so surprised by what it feels like to be wanted, to be welcomed, to be cared for, uh, which all of it sounds funny even when I say it, because of course I'm wanted and welcomed and cared for. Like I don't question that in my life, but there's something very visceral and tangible about having someone say, please come live with us. We really want you here please don't pay us. We want you here. Please be part of our family. We want you here. And then the sec- the other side of that that has surprised me is my own resistance to that. Will I accept it? Will I allow that to be true? Will I let myself be the word I want? Like mm, humble, I guess, enough to allow that I can actually be cared for. I'm just so surprised by all of the, all of it, uh, both my own resistance and just the grace and generosity and beauty of it. Didn't see that coming and uh, love, love that I get to be in this season and experiencing this. That is also one of those pieces of life is that receiving, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, saying, you know, as we're becoming these whole people, how that is a lifetime. And I think that receiving is also a lifetime. Yes. And I think the other side of it, especially for women, it's not so simple as to say, well, just receive. As women, we have to learn to name what we actually want and ask for it and then receive, right? But we can't receive if we don't ask for what it is that we want, know what it is that we need. And that's hard for us at times and in particular contexts, because we believe that we're not deserving, that we should be good, that we need to be happy with what we've got. Um, You know, all that, all that messaging that's just so ingrained and icky. I have loved our conversation. Seriously, I have loved it. And I know we're coming to the end I want, I want you to tell people how to work with you, how to find you. But my last question before that is, what would you tell your 18-year-old self that you were thankful for in the season of life you're in right now? Mm. Well, I would tell her that uh, despite what it all looks and feels like right now, here's what's actually true. Uh, you are more than enough and you are not too much. And there will be a day. I want you to believe it now, 18 all the way through and 
there will be a day when you do actually believe it, when you walk through your world aware that both of those statements are true. I am more than enough and I'm not too much. Beautiful. Can you tell our listeners where to find you and how to work with you? Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, the best place to go is just to my website, ronadietrich.com. And my deepest love beyond writing uh, and doing the storytelling work is working with women one-on-one. I just feel so lucky to be in conversation and relationship with women to talk about these stories that we've been told, to talk about the ones we still desire to live but don't know how to step into, to talk about the sacred and the spiritual and what it means to feel whole and integrated and complete. Uh, so that is the work that I do. And uh, it is it is just a privilege and a gift to sit in conversation with women and hear their hearts and stories and invite them to one that is bigger and deeper and all that they deserve. And then I do other things. You can see all that on my website with these women's stories. I offer readings and I have a card deck with all their stories on them. And uh, just um, so lots of stuff that's there that I do as well. But the one-on-one work is my love. Thank you so much for being a guest. I really appreciate it. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Cindy. Just such an honor. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Leaving a rating and review helps to improve rankings in iTunes. It shows engagement, which may attract sponsors, and it is essential for the podcast to be discovered by new listeners. Plus, it would mean the world to me. Thanks again. Until next time, live inspired.